It's chaos. It's a different type of Sunday scary. It's your newest obsession. It's Dirty Driving, a Formula One podcast. We're the Hornsby sisters. I'm Katie. And I'm Megan. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. It's another bye week. So welcome back to our deep dive series. Today, we are focusing on our fourth team, which is mind-blowing considering it is only May and we're only five rounds into the year. It's honestly been exhausting this whole, we've got a race, we don't have a race, we've got a race, we don't have a race. It's hard to keep track. It's hard to keep the sleep schedule going. It's hard to know what's coming next. Luckily, we've got two races in a row starting next weekend. So it's looking up. It's definitely looking up. I mean, I do appreciate that we have, you know, it's been a little less chaotic this year as it felt like it was at the end of last year. But holy bejesus, I am ready for a doubleheader. Not super excited it's Barcelona into Monaco. But, Katie, some things have happened. We're actually recording on Sunday and um, we have got to take a break Take a little pause here from our team, Aston Martin, to discuss what occurred at Monaco today. I feel like we need some scary music, like Dracula, like, da-na-na-na. bum 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 Okay, let me break it down. Charles Leclerc in Monaco. It's happened, everybody. It has happened. The curse of Charles and Monaco continues. Also, me doing this with my hands and my broken finger, if you're watching, is really <laughs> funny. Um, so it has happened today, Sunday, May 15th. Charles Leclerc took place in a, took place in a dem wow, a demonstration run at the historic Monaco Grand Prix. Charles Leclerc was behind the wheel of the iconic. 1974 Ferrari that was once driven by three-time champion Nicky Lauda. Heading into Ricas, he lost control of the rear of the car, spun and crashed with the rear end against the barriers. He managed to keep it running after the impact, but there was damage to the right right wing that always is hard to say. Right Right wing. wing, And impacted the right rear wheel. We have later found out that the crash was due to an issue with the car's brake. But let me tell you, I have a theory, Katie. But before I get to my theory, she's rolling her eyes. She knows what I'm about to say. We need to discuss Charles's tweet today. He said, when you thought you had already had all the bad luck in the world in Monaco and you, and you lose the brakes into a gas with one of the most iconic historical Ferrari Formula One cars. Like, what? <laughs> At least he knows that he has bad luck in Monaco. Like, if he didn't, I hope someone would tell him. So at least he's, like, understanding of the fact that now there's some bad luck at his home turf. I mean, it just is awful. But I have a theory. Ready for my theory? I am I am ready for this theory. I think this is the year that Charles actually wins Monaco because she's made a, she's made a look because the crash – The bad luck has already been fulfilled for 2022. So this is the only year that it can happen unless Ferrari gets smart and decides to make him run in a historic demonstration race and crash out before the Monaco Grand Prix for the rest of his contract. (laughs) 
too much. That is too much. Now, you might be on to something. So when it comes to Monaco, maybe we'll play some bets that Charles Leclerc will win. You know, I, who knows? We can't go I, down from here. We can only go up. No, we can only go up. And in fact, I partially fully believe in this weird curses. And technically the curse has been fulfilled. So now he, this is the only, this is it. This is his shot. This is just one chance. This, this is one opportunity. I'm about to start singing and I won't. I'm going to save all she, of our yeah. listeners. I thought about it for a second. So let me. So seriously, I need everybody to fully believe in the fact that the curse of Charles Leclerc in Monaco has somehow been like, fulfilled. I don't know, fulfilled, checkmarked for the year. The to-do list of curses is check. And now we will see him actually find success in the Monaco Grand Prix. Like, I'm not going to tell anybody to place bets. That's illegal, I think. I don't have any knowledge that tells you how to place bets. But I'm going to bet big on Charles Leclerc and Monaco in two weeks because of this whole situation. We will just have to wait and see. Simply, we will just have to wait and see. But also, like, how... I'm sorry, I've got to say, how fucking awful must you feel if you just crashed, like, <laughs> Nikki Lauda's historic car? Luckily, um, you know, repairs can be made. And I guess we move on from the fact that he's crashed Nikki Lauda's car. I mean, I think we have to. I mean, we just have to. There's nothing else to do. We must We must move we on. Must, we must. We must move on. We must carry on and pursuit of a Charles Leclerc win in Monaco. It's happening. If I cl- if I call this because of a curse, that's not a real curse, then I might be the greatest uh the, the greatest predictor in the history of the world. I might be the George <laughs> Russell predicting a safety car in Miami of the week. Oh my gosh, enough. Enough. <laughs> she knows I'm right. Immediately puts Charles Leclerc on my fantasy team. I know, like, do I take him off for Monaco? I don't know. I guess not. No. The curse has been fulfilled. We are keeping him there. If anybody knows anything about curse fulfillment, hit me up. I got some questions. (laughs) Do we need to form a prayer circle? I found some prayer candles in Katie's old bedroom. So maybe I need to light some. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm doing it. Okay. Let's let's get to Aston Martin. Let's get uh, let's, to we have to keep we have to move on because this is not a Ferrari episode and I could talk about curses all day, even though I know nothing. She knows actually nothing about curses, so do not take her word for any of it. I think I'm going to jump right in and talk about our one of our favorites, Sebastian Vettel. I think we need to go straight into Seb because I want to leave Stroll for second. Yes, I, I agree. OK, so Sebastian Vettel. Needs very little introduction. This man has won four world championships. He has won 53 races. He stood on the podium 122 times. And he has taken 57 pole positions. Needs little to no introduction. But I'm going to go ahead and introduce him anyway. (laughs) But before I get to that, I do have to say this one thing. He's not known for being on social media. He's an all over. He's an all around private guy. Um, he doesn't like talking to him, talking about himself. In fact, um, in his Beyond the Grid uh, interview, he's like, "Yeah, I don't really like talking about myself. So let's talk about something else." Which 
I mean, you're Sebastian Vettel. We have to talk about you. So <laughs> he we just have wants to, to get Especially straight to the issues. Straight to the issues, which is another big thing that I want to mention is that he always, if not every single race, pretty much takes a stand on the geopolitical issues that that race location is facing. Just recently in Miami, he wore the shirt about how Miami is going to be underwater in a couple of years um, due to climate change. And so he is a man that um, brings action and awareness to the things that need awareness and action brought to, which, um, you know, he's only one of two drivers on the grid that really does that and uses his platform that he has so luckily created for himself to really share and spread awareness on these issues. Did you watch his BBC question time? I did not. Okay, we need to do that because that was something I meant to do before we recorded. Um, so if anybody's listened, I'd be interested to for you to share your thoughts because I haven't, I haven't watched it yet. Um, he's the first Formula One driver to be on it, which I think is insane. Um, there was a lot of press coverage ahead of it. Like he was riding london transit to get there Mm -hmm. so i just was wondering sorry to interrupt but i was just wondering if you had watched it at all so maybe we should watch it let's watch it let's watch it we'll do it together all right so i'm gonna bring us all the way back to um when sebastian vettel was three because that's when he first started karting and then he began racing in the kart series in 1995 at the age of eight and like we've been talking about all these young drivers not that sebastian vettel is not young but He's definitely older than most of the grid. And so it's weird to think like at in 1995, he was eight when most of the drivers have not been born yet. So just, you know, time. It gets (laughs) you. And then three years later in 1998, the lovely year I was born, he was accepted into the Red Bull junior team and won various titles with them. In 2003, he was promoted to the Open Wheel Cars, where he won 18 of the 20 races to take the 2004 BMW ADAC Championship. So, has been taking names since the beginning. His Formula One career started in 2006, when he tested for both Williams and BMW Sauber. He was then promoted to BMW Sauber's test driver position. And in 2007, he was actually winning the Formula 3.5 Series championship when he was called up permanently by BMW Sauber to finish out the season. Um, They eventually released him, and he joined Toro Rosso, replacing Scott Speed during the 2007 season and would go on in 2008 to actually compete as one of the drivers for Toro Rosso. Uh, Sebastian Vettel has taken a lot of records as the youngest at the time. Since then, a couple of them have been broken, but I wanted to touch on some of them as I talked about Sebastian Vettel because he was the young gun back in 2008, 2009, all the way up until about 2010 or 12. So at the Italian Grand Prix, In 2008, he became the youngest driver in history to win a Formula One Grand Prix at 21 years and 74 days. This was Toro Rosso's only win, and the victory led the German media to dub him as Baby Shumi. Uh, He was named Rookie of the Year and just had an incredible first showing in Formula One, which started an incredible showing for the rest of his career that we've seen thus far. 
In 2009, he moved up to Red Bull and finished second behind Jensen Button. And the following year, Vettel went into the final race of the season in Abu Dhabi with a 15-point deficit to Alonso and a 7-point gap to Mark Webber. And he ended up winning the Grand Prix from pole position to become the youngest World Drivers' Championship in the sport's history as Fernando Alonso only finished seventh in the race and he was able to make up all of those points. So pretty incredible. He goes on to then win the next three years of World Champion Drivers' Championships with Red Bull. So in 2011, it was only the second time in the sports history that a driver had finished second or higher in each of the first nine races of the season and won at least six of them. So just absolutely, again, annihilating records. In Italy, he took his 10th pole position of the year in which he joined Arrington Senna as the only driver to take 10 pole positions in two separate seasons. So up amongst the greats already, um, just in his, what would have been his fifth, fourth year, fifth year in Formula One. And then a podium finish in Japan secured his second successful title with four races remaining, making him the youngest ever double and back-to-back world championship. Vettel broke the record for the most pole positions in a season at the season finale in Brazil after he clinched his 15th pole of the year and he complete and he completed the year with 15 poles, 11 victories and 17 podiums from 19 total races and scored a record total of 392 points. Incredible. In 2012, he won the championship by three points. Again, youngest ever triple world champion. And then in 2013, he set the record for most consecutive race wins with nine um, after he became only the third man after Alberto Ascari and Jim Clark to take consecutive Grand Slams. So he sealed his fourth world title at the Indian Grand Prix, and that was his fourth uh, world driver's championship in the four years for Red Bull. In 2014, Red Bull suffered some reliability problems and Vettel really just struggled to get grips with the RB10 and the switch to Pirelli tires. So we did not see him come back to take his fifth championship. In October of that year, Red Bull had announced that Vettel would be leaving the team to join Ferrari one year before his contract was actually due to expire. So ended ties with them and moved on. So from 2015 to 2020, Vettel raced for Ferrari. He did not win any races in 2016. In his third season, Vettel failed to win the World Drivers' Championship for the first time in his career after leading the championship for some point in the season. So I don't want to say his time with Ferrari was all bad, because there were some great moments, but definitely a change from the mo- momentum he was having at Red Bull. But I think that was that was totally due to the fact that Mercedes was just a powerhouse. Like, it really yeah. wasn't, I mean, it wasn't his fault at all. It was mostly like Ferrari just couldn't compete with the, the Mercedes. They could compete in moments, but it was the Mercedes era. Yeah, it was the Mercedes-dominated era that... 
actually made 2019 and 2020 not great years. Vettel was very outspoken about the car just not being up to the standards that it needed to be. Um, and there was an amicable split between both Ferrari and Sebastian Vettel. So in 2021, he replaced Sergio Perez and ended the season 12th in front of his teammate Lance. He made 132 overtakes, winning the inaugural overtake award. And then this year in 2020, he, if you recall, missed the first two races uh, due to testing positive for COVID. He DNF'd in Australia. He took point points in Emilia Romagna in eighth. And then just recently in Miami had the DNF due to that run-in with Michael Sch- with Mick Schumacher, excuse me. So all in all, we're starting to see Sebastian Vettel question where he wants to be next year, if he wants to continue, if he wants to take a step back and be with his family and try the next thing. But all in all, I think Sebastian Vettel's name will ring ring in Formula One forever and ever. He absolutely annihilated the early 2010s and continues to this day to be not only an upstanding citizen of the world, but an upstanding person and a huge support to not only his team as a leader, but to Mick Schumacher as a father figure. I just, I love him so much. And I really, the only bit from the BBC question time that I caught was that was a kind of like a quote from him or a a snippet of quotes, I think. Basically, he was talking about like motorsport Formula One is his passion when he's in the car. But when he's out of the car, he just is constantly questioning, is this, you know, should we even be doing this, wasting resources? And part of me thinks, part of me hopes that Seb is around for forever because I I do love him and I do love supporting him. But sometimes I kind of wonder if his ability to engage in tough conversations is really where he should be these days. And I think he could do that without the F1 platform. I agree. I could see him in a, in a bigger role as some sort of ambassador to sustainability and to the future of this planet. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. That's the, that's the thing that he cares the most about. Um, you'll hear him talk about that in pretty much any interview that he does. Um, in his uh, Beyond the Grid interview, he talks about farming and how, uh, you know, we don't know, the average human doesn't know a lot about farming, but we rely on it to feed us and to sustain us and wants to bring more education to the people and more insight into the things that need need more focus as we continue to grow and develop as a planet. He's so fascinating. I love learning about him. I love his relationship with Mick. I I my heart hurts because I know that he must miss Michael. Like in every time he talks about Michael, it's he's the greatest. He's the greatest and no one will ever change that. And that's his like, you know, F1 hero. So I think his relationship with Mick is incredible. We see it all the time. We saw it after they came together in Miami. Um, but I just, his heart must ache for not having who I would consider one of his best friends. He even says that. Yeah. I mean, 
just I was trying to find this quote that I found earlier, but I don't have it up. Um, he said that the best part about joining Ferrari was not only joining the legacy and the history of the team, but joining the legacy that Michael Schumacher had created and just how he felt such an honor to be in the same shoes that Michael once once stood in. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. Um, okay. So completely different human in Lance Stroll, but we're going to dive into him. So I have a lot to say about Lance and a lot to say about the Stroll Familia. They're not <laughs> they're not Spanish, so I should have gone with French there, but um, Canada and all that. So let's get into Lance. <laughs> he is the son of Lawrence Stroll, affectionately referred to by Katie and A as Papa Stroll, who is a billionaire entrepreneur. He's now based in Geneva, but the family grew up in Canada outside of Montreal. Um, he was actually the ma- – and this is shocking to me. He was the mastermind behind the Michael Kors IPO in 2011. Had no idea. You know, when I was in, in high school then and people were obsessed with Michael Kors, there was not even a shred in my mind that about, like, knowing who Lawrence <laughs> Stroll is. And now I'm like, wow, you created all of this and led to the Michael <laughs> Kors craze that existed my senior year in all of college. Their bags are hideous, by the way. Um, okay. He made, and then, you know, he was part of the IPO, then he made his fortune actually selling those shares. So they grew up wealthy, but not like billionaire stroll money. Not like I'm going to buy Aston Martin money, um, until after the whole Michael Kors thing. Lawrence Stroll led the consortium that took over Force India midway through the 2018 season. Lance would leave Williams to go to Racing Point, though there was a name change because it was Racing Force India. Then it became just racing point. So that's like – I we're going to dive into that here in a second. And I know Katie and I are going to talk about it later. But I wanted to kind of like lead in with that when talking about his dad. And then Papa Stroll is actually now the part owner of the Aston Martin F1 team and the road car company. So that is another big kind of important piece to this puzzle. Essentially, all of that mumbo jumbo that I just said – kind of puts Lance Stroll in, like, the de facto face of pay drivers. He's an F1 due to funding, but I would argue that he is qualified to be there at times. I'm going to dub him the patron saint of wealthy sons of wealthy men in F1. Mm-hmm. And really the, like, key business model for the Strolls, other than Lance Stroll being involved – I mean, Lawrence Stroll being involved in Michael Kors, is that Lance, Lawrence Stroll – Wow, their names are so confusing. I'm going Papa Stroll. <laughs> the key point here is that Papa Stroll's goal in life is to purchase businesses that allow Lance to go vroom vroom. We've seen it, whatever. In Lance Stroll's um, kind of discussion about the fact that, you know, he is the de facto face of F1 pay drivers, he does say that that like criticism fuels him, which I do think is the best and only response he has. He does. He is qualified. He does have the skills, though. He was a teenage sensation with massive wet weather skills. And he attributes all of that to growing up in what he dubs the shitty conditions of Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Not me. It's Lance. The conditions are (laughs) shitty, though, in places. Um, and he like he really every time he talks about it, he likes the challenge of driving in the wet. He likes the dance. He likes the fact that every corner is different for the competition. And I do really love that. Overall, Stroll, 
the son, Junior Lance, is competitive and has the speed, but really his biggest struggle in his career since he's joined F1 is A, having the car at times, and B, having the in-race performance and the consistency. He's aware of that consistency issue. He's been aware of it for years. Eventually, I hope he sorts it all out because I do actually like want success for him, even though I kind of roast his ass sometimes. <laughs> That's there a good go. way to put it. Like, we want him to be successful, but we do enjoy a good Lance Grill moment. I mean, I do actually want Lance to be successful. It's very weird. It's very conflicting. I haven't dealt with these, like, Emotions. feelings. I'm trying to work through them. Now we'll see. Come back to me in a year. Okay, let's talk about his, like, path, his journey. The Lance Stroll Germany. He got his start. He actually started go-karting when he was six. His dad purchased him a go-kart for his sixth birthday. And he actually took like his first like quote unquote laps in it at a track right outside of Montreal, which I think is fucking cool. Actually, I think that's really sweet. In 2008, his first year in like official competition, he won the Federation des Sports Automobile de Quebec Rookie and Driver of the Year Award. He won the Quebec Cup. He's won the Canadian National Montreal cup so he was very successful in canada and north america however at the age of 12 and this is something that i find fascinating and really makes me actually like the strolls maybe not papa stroll at times but it does make me like the strolls is that the entire family moved from canada to europe for lance's career and i think like that's what parents should do i mean if you watch, if you listen to his Beyond the Grid episode, he talks about how like none of his success would be a thing if his parents hadn't done this, moved to Europe where all the good racers were. And really his sister had agreed to leave school in Canada and go with them because it's not like she was going to get left behind outside of Montreal. So to me, it makes it feel a lot less shitty that his dad just buys him businesses to drive cars. It's a family enterprise. It has been since he was a child. And they've been making sacrifices and giving up maybe giving of themselves for his passion, Um, which he was passionate about racing. But really, it was the move to Europe that actually turned it more into something that he found like he could be successful at and see finally a future in. In 2010, once he was in Europe, he became a member of – no, right. Yes. Right after he got to Europe, he became a member of the Ferrari driver academy and in 2014 at the florida winter series which is a non-championship series it's organized by the ferrari driver academy he um got his first like experience in formula four cars he actually raced at that that year in the winter series in florida against nicholas latifi and max verstappen which blows my mind, but I also constantly forget that all of these drivers have been racing each other for years if they're in the same like age bracket. In 2016, he left the Ferrari Driver Academy to be a Williams test driver. And in 2017, he, de- he debuted for Williams, which was essentially him jumping up like the formula development ladder by two steps. He went from F3 to F1, which is quite impressive, actually, because you pretty much do follow the mold um, for the majority of people. In 2017, for Williams, he was partnered with Felipe Massa, who narrowly beat him in points. He was the first Canadian in F1 since 1997, which was literally before he was born and actually before Katie was born. 
um, since champion Jacques Villeneuve at 18 years old. He got a podium as a rookie. He took third place in Azerbaijan. And he is the second at the time, was the second youngest driver to finish an F1 race on the podium. And based on my calculations and correct memory, he is the latest rookie to be on the podium. Someone can fact check me on that, but based on my memory, that seems to track. I think that's right. Katie's going to fact check me while I do this. I'm going to fact check right now. Um, In 2018, he was again with Williams. Um, This was also the year that Papa Stroll purchased or led the consortium to purchase Force India, like I said. In 2019, he made the move to his dad's team, which is now dubbed Racing Point. He was arguably the best you know what the fuck it the best word to describe him is mediocre that year sorry i said it don't care he was teammates with sergio perez who outscored him and then um again in 2022 he was at racing point but that year was much better that was the he had a faster car it was the year of the pink mercedes he had his maiden pole at istanbul luckily or unfortunately he didn't see that translate to any race performance but he was fortunate enough to have that pole position Unfortunately, Perez outscored him, but he did have two podiums. He took third at the Italian Grand Prix at Monza and third at the Shakir Grand Prix. This was the year of his highest finish in the Drivers' Championship. He was 11th with 75 points, so he's yet to crap. crap. (laughs) He is yet to crack into the top 10 in terms of the Drivers' Championship. I think that is kind of indicative of his lack of having the car and his lack of consistency. This year, we're going to fast forward to this year with Aston Martin, has been a rocky start. It's been a rocky, rocky road for Aston Martin. Um, But Emilio Romagna, they had a double points finish, which was very, very nice to see. Um, He did have a crash with Nicholas Latifi in Australia, which saw him get a third-place grid penalty, and then he actually received a penalty that race for weaving on the straights. And he was criticized by Valtteri Botas for doing that and having that reckless driving. Ultimately, Stroll's response is, I'm weaving to try and break the slipstream, not to try and defend. And they penalized him for it. So it, it's been an interesting year at Aston Martin this year, and I think that's the only way of describing it. You know, they were very unlucky with those with the first two races, Vettel out because of COVID. They've been unlucky with DNFs. And really, Lance Stroll has got to, like, buckle down and really, like, head down and try to find that consistency. I don't know if it's going to happen, though. I don't I think know. you're right, Megan, by the way. I love when someone proves me right. If if I'm wrong, yeah. someone tell me. On my, on my quick Googling, I believe you're right because I was looking – they don't really, you know – Sometimes they don't just come out and tell you what the answer is. But the only one who's younger to have scored a podium is Max Verstappen. And he did that before Lance Stroll did. I think he is the latest Lance, then. I think Lance is the latest. My only hesitation was Lando, but that wasn't his – that was his sophomore year, not his rookie year. Yeah, it was – it had to be the rookie year. But, yeah, no. Okay, got something right. Woo! Yay! <laughs> Yay! I don't know what – what are your thoughts about where Lance is at this year so far? I mean, we're five races in. I mean, I would love to see more from Lance. Again, he's like the one that we want to root for and we want to do well, but his consistency doesn't always allow him to shine. Um, 
And we're going to get into this a little bit more later, but I truly think the car is the issue this year, not the drivers. And so this weekend they may be debuting or they will be debuting some new stuff. Um, So I'd like to see Lance really capitalize on these upgrades and, and do something more than what I've seen thus far. I think that's the right word. I don't think that Lance Stroll, I mean, he's had shitty cars some years, but I don't think he is maximizing and capitalizing on times when he can score points where the car is able to. I don't think he has or hasn't gained that, like, I am going to, we know we're in a shit box, but, I mean, the Aston Martin, I, I don't know if I really want to call it a shitbox for this year. But, like, the years that he's been in a shitbox, I don't think he has maximized when he needed to. And that, I think, ties into his consistency. And I don't know if that's confidence. I, I don't know what that is. But that's just kind of my interpretation of him as a driver. Yeah, I feel like every weekend he doesn't always necessarily show up. That is also a good way of putting it. Some weekends, I'm yeah, like, like, Lance, yeah, were you I there? Just, I can't count on him to show up every weekend. And and you're right. I don't know if that has to do with confidence. I don't know if that has to do with distractions or, like, does he really want to be in Formula One? I don't know. Is that a hard, harsh question to ask? No, I definitely think he wants to be there. I, here, here's here's my final thought on it. There's a reason why he's not on my fantasy team and why every time I've had an opportunity to put him on my fantasy team, I've been like, can't trust him. Yeah, can't trust him. There's not a lot of trust there. That's a good way to say it. Can't trust him to bring the performance when I need the performance. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Aston Martin in Formula One. And in order to do that, it's kind of, It's a two-sided issue. The first issue that we need to address, it's not issues. The first thing we need to address is their start in Formula One and what they've done throughout the years since then. And then we also have to address the team that has now turned into Aston Martin. So we'll start with the history and the origins of Aston Martin in Formula One because we're going to go in timeline order. Um, So it starts... (laughs) Wait, Megan's laughing at me. It starts way back um, with the David Brown Corporation and the entry of the DBR4, their first open wheel racing car into Formula One. So way back in the 1950s, near the start of Formula One, near the end of the last decade of the first decade of Formula One, um, the DBR4 was built and it was actually, they started building it in 1957, but it didn't debut until 1959. So that delay in development was because they were focused on building out the DBR1, which actually went on to win the 1959 24 hour Le Mans. And so by pushing the Formula One car kind of to the side, by the time it actually debuted, two years after they had started building it, it was outdated, it struggled for pace, and it failed to score any points in the first year. And then quickly they were like, this isn't working for us, let's debut a different car next year for 1960. So they built the DBR5 to compete. It wasn't ready in time for the season to start. 
So they actually used the DBR4 for the first couple of races um, before the DBR85 came to fruition. So it was lighter and it featured an independent suspension, um, but they had put the heavy engine in the front of the car, which was regularly outclassed by the more common rear engine vehicles. So didn't really work out. It actually failed pretty harshly. Um, it it was a poor run. It was a poor showing. And the team also, again, failed to score a single point. So Aston Martin completely abandoned F1 to focus on other sports car racing and said, you know what, that's it. And they just withdrew. So we didn't see them. We didn't really hear the Aston Martin name in Formula One until... Let's see if I can do some quick math. Uh, 45 years later, Megan, maybe check me on that. 2006, David Richards, who leads the consortium that owns Aston Martin and his tech firm team or tech firm company, ProDrive, were granted a potential entrant for the 2008 F1 World Championship. But Richards made it very clear that they weren't going to be ready for a while and in fact talked more about how they wanted to make a purchase of a team that was failing rather than start one on their own. In 2009, Richards once again announced the possibility of a return to Formula One, but it didn't, it didn't happen, did not come to fruition. And until, um, you know, 2016, where Aston Martin served as a sponsor for Red Bull Racing uh, for the next four years until 2020. They were the title sponsor, 2018, 2019, 2020. We didn't get much Formula One Aston Martin action until Papa Stroll rolled in. So before I get into that, though, I want to talk about the team that Papa Stroll ended up with and how they got Formula, how they got formed in Formula One and what they've been doing since then because it has to be, I don't know if this is factual, but it has to be the team that has had the most name changes. Like No, I, I think that's Renault. It has, okay, maybe Renault. Second place then. I'll take second place on this because every year pretty much their name has changed. So it starts back with the Jordan team. So the team started its history with the foundings of Jordan Grand Prix in the early 1980s by this Irish businessman, Eddie Jordan, who actually raced in the late 1970s. And in 1991, Michael Schumacher raced for the team at the Belgian GP before going on and signing with Bennington Ford uh, for the next race. So 91, 1991 actually turned out to be their best year. They finished third in the Constructors' Cup with both of their drivers, Damon Hill and Heinz Harold Friesden. Sorry if I said that incorrectly. Fretzen? Fretzen? Uh, Jordan was most notable for their development and their debut of some of the greats. So like I said, Michael Schumacher, Rubens Barrichello, Eddie Irvine, and Ralph Schumacher all got their starts with the Jordan team. Fast forward to 2005, the Midland Group bought the Jordan team and renamed it to MF1 Racing in 2006. In 2007, the team was sold to Dutch car manufacturer Spiker, where they raced under Spiker F1. So 
we're already on our third name change and we're in 2008, which is when VJ Malia and Michael Mole purchased the team and rebranded it to Force India. And I think we all, if you've seen um, Drive to Survive, then you kind of know, specifically season one of Drive to Survive, you know the story behind VJ Malia and the team going into administration. Shortly before that took place, though, they did have one other name change that I have to mention. Um, they changed to the Sahara Indian um, or Force India, excuse me, yes, Sahara Force India was the name of the team um, in 2011 after Sahara India Parawar bought 42.5% of the shares and rebranded to include their name in the title. So like I said, we had the VJ Malia incident issue all around clusterfuck of not having enough money. So in 2018, the team entered administration in July, which is when Papa Stroll comes into the picture. And he led a consortium that bought the team during the summer break and renamed it mid-season to Racing Force India for the remainder of the 2018 season. Just one note for all of our American listeners, because most of you are American. Going into administration is the British term for going bankrupt. So they had no money. Zero dollars. no money. <laughs> they have zero dollars. In, in season one, you see – I, I think I might be imagining this, but this might be true, that you see them telling everybody that they are going to get paid. Yes, you do. Because that, that is how I learned what going into administration was in season one is because they are like – don't worry, you guys, you're all going to be paid. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought going into administration was just like legal trouble. So no, it is going bankrupt. Going bankrupt. Yes. Thank you for that clarification, Megan. Um, so yes, renamed it right after the summer break. And at this team, at this time, the team actually stopped racing under the original Jordan FIA entry. So it ended that long history of not only name changes, but success that was once tied to the Jordan name. So moving on, they are under a different name registered with the FIA. Uh, there was this big intra-team rivalry between Sergio Perez and Esteban Ocon uh, that I'm not going to go really into detail with, but that was kind of the drama along with going into administration and Papa Stroll coming in. They dropped to the middle of the grid with the financial insecurity, but and kind of recovered to uh, seventh place overall for 2018. In 2019, that's when we have the complete rebrand to just Racing Point. This is where Lance Stroll joined the team, and they were able to score points in the first four races. But it was clear that there was this, like, hangover from the 2018 season uh, before Lance, again, reliability issues, not showing us what he could do. Um, Perez was able to score 53 of the 73 points, and the team again finished an overall seventh. 2020, historically the team's best season, and they were doing that under the Racing Point name. They finished fourth in the Constructors' Championship, and it was basically because they designed the car after the 2019 Mercedes. They were dubbed as the pink Mercedes on the grid, 
Uh, they got into a little trouble for that. I believe it was the rear wing that put them in trouble, but don't quote me on that. Um, and they were able to score their first ever race win thanks to Checo. I think it was the brake ducks. Brake. Okay. Thank you. I knew it was. You're welcome. There was one, com- one component that caused the issues. But other than that, everything was okay. Which, sorry to interrupt again, but that is like one of the most ridiculously high school episodes of Formula One Drive to Survive, Drive to Survive ever. It is literally like high school. Like everybody's like <laughs> gossiping. They're like, did you see the pink Mercedes? Did you see the pink Mercedes? I saw the pink Mercedes. Did you see the pink Mercedes? Are we going to protest it? Are you going to protest it? Who's going to protest it? <laughs> and then and then you have Lauren Stroll being like, everything we've done is legal. In this like very serious press statement that looks like he's being They're forced covering up to their read. Tracks. Like, I don't know. He's being forced to read it. And he's like, I'm very serious about this. And they're like, did you see the pink Mercedes? Did you see the pink Mercedes? <laughs> I saw the pink Mercedes. Are you like, and then it's like this back and forth dichotomy. And then you have, I think there's Toto Wolf like, yeah, it's legal. <laughs> it's the greatest. It's like one of my favorite episodes because it's so extra. But that's how I think the paddock is. It- yeah, I mean, that's the best part about Drive to Survive is you get all the background stories and all the background uh, visuals that they provide. I just wish we could get the, like, WhatsApp read receipts to see everybody, like, talking shit on it. Yeah, that'd be really nice. That'd be so <laughs> funny to read. That'd be dangerous. Yeah, okay, they should leak so- those in, like, 50 years. <laughs> okay, so... Finally, we're at the last, well, second to last name change. There was a little name change between 2021 and 2022. We added an extra name to the name. But (laughs) in 2021, January was when Papa Stroll purchased 16.7% stake in Aston Martin and rebranded the team for the 2021 season, the Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One team. 2021 saw regulation changes to the floor, which the team was not prepared for at all and did not perform great because of that. So halfway through the season, they were one of the first teams to abandon the 2021 season and start focusing on the 2022 car. They finished the season seventh again, scoring less than half of their 2020 total. Which brings us to this year and... My oh my, do we have a lot to talk about. So this is the worst start to the season since the induction of this team. And it's now the Aston Martin Aramco Cognizant Formula One team. Porpoising issues and being overweight are two of their biggest concerns. So porpoising, for those of you who don't know it, it's when the car goes up and down, up and down, up and down has caused them to run the car at a higher ride height to minimize the porpoising, costing them both downforce and lap time. So Mike Crack said in Australia that the car did not inspire confidence because they lacked feel throughout steering, which is issue number three. Um, They indicated that after some suspension-related changes that came from Miami, things seemed to be better for the drivers. Um, But due to these 
the two main issues, the two first ones I mentioned, the porpoisine and being overweight, they've reallocated a lot of their development time to fixing these issues instead of producing other components and really competing in the development war that the other teams are competing in. There's, as they say, no quick fix without sacrificing car performance. So right now, it's all about trying to do their best to make sure that the cars can finish the races. And they are currently ahead of Williams in the championship with six points from the last five races. So not a pretty start to the season. There's also a ton of other stuff happening behind the scenes, off the track, and all of the above. So Megan, I think for our main topic, we need to talk about the Stroll family and the future of Aston Martin. All I'm going to say is Papa Stroll has got to be pissed because this was not part of his five-year plan. And yes, he must know something about college because in America because that's literally what we have. We have a five-year plan. <laughs> we have a like, five-year plan that... It's like what the advisors tell you like your first week of being a freshman. They're like, are you on the four-year plan or the five-year plan? And Lauren Stroll was like, I'll take the five for Aston Martin to be successful in F1. Um, yeah, we got a lot of shit we need to dissect. So We have a lot to talk about. First off, we need to talk about the fact that should we go? I think we should go team principal first. Like we got to get it out there. We just talked about Alpine. I think we start there. We have a new team principal and his name is Mike Crack. Mike Crack. I'm going to say it again. Mike Crack. Ten points to Gryffindor who, who can give me the best joke about the name Mike Crack. Drop it in the DMs um, because there's got to be some great ones. The only thing I can think of is butt crack. And that's not particularly funny. Um, But yeah, we had a massive change in team principal this year. So Otmar Schaffnauer left. Um, We talked about this a little last or two weeks ago in the Alpine team deep dive. But I'm going to drop some stats right here real quick because, you know, I've read a couple more articles and I find them interesting, Katie. So bear with me. So essentially Schaffnauer, to give a quick summary, Schaffnauer left Aston Martin to go to Alpine after former McLaren boss Martin Whitmarch joined the group as CEO and rocked the boat. Like, literally, the boat is almost capsizing and Schaffner was like, I'd rather I'd rather jump into the dinghy that's Alpine. Um, and this is a hilarious quote if you're Catholic. Essentially, what <laughs> Schaffnauer said is the Catholic Church only has one pope, except for that time where it had two popes, if you're historical. Um, and when you have two popes, it's just not right. So I think it was time to leave and leave last and leave Aston Martin to one pope. He did come out and clarify that the second pope that he's referring to is not Lawrence Stroll. He's specifically talking talking about Martin Whitmarsh because him and Martin Whitmarsh were both reporting to Lawrence, whereas now we have Mike Crack who joined the team who's reporting to Martin Whitmarsh who then reports to Lawrence Stroll. I completely understand this. I think that logic is much smarter to have like your direct reports in line instead of, you know, overlapping. Mark Crack is essentially responsible for leading the technical and operational functions. He cut, he came to Aston Martin with motorsport positions at both BMW and Porsche. And he's back with like an engineering background for his time at Formula One, for his time in Formula One with Sauber. So I feel like this is a good play for them 
um, in terms of operations, like functionality. I think it's an unfortunate play for them because I do think that Otmar, it, I really like his style. And I think that he has like shown success historically with the team, but couldn't stay there anymore. So it's rather unfortunate that this is where we're at. This is the state of the Aston Martin union in terms of their leadership. What are your thoughts? Yeah. uh, I mean, I think when you know it's time to go, it's time to go. I think that's on a poop commercial. Yeah, it might be. (laughs) But it's true when you know you are no longer – I'm trying not to say it. When you know you are no longer appreciated, valued, um, a member of the table maybe, member of the conversation, then it's time to go. Uh, I – Read the article that Megan also read that is now on Formula1.com. It's the long read of the week. Um, And I truly think, as Otmar said it best, he's better in blue. It matches his eyes. (laughs) And you can't have two popes. Even the Catholic Church doesn't have two popes. I like that. I like that. And that's that's a good way of looking at it, I think. The other big change is we've had a change in CEOs. So Aston Martin parted ways with their CEO, Tobias Moores, um, after reported strategic differences with Lawrence Stroll. I think there was a lot of rumors circulating about this, and I really don't know what is true because I honestly don't believe a single press release um, from Lawrence Stroll, considering we all know the pink Mercedes here press release was chaotic at best. Um, So I don't really know exactly what, like, was happening behind the doors in terms of differences. I would probably say that there is some issue with having two popes again and not enough of the right pope there. Um, He was replaced with former Ferrari CEO Amadeo Felicia and another Ferrari executive, Roberto Fidali. Fidali? Um, was brought in as Aston Martin's CTO. The goal is essentially, and Lauren Stroll is very clear with this as part of his five-year plan, to emulate Ferrari's success and to bring some electricity to the brand, especially because the launch of their new, um, the launch of the Valkyrie car was not as iconic as they wanted it to be. I think they've only made like 15 when they had, you know, said that they, or thought that they were going to do 90 in a year. Um they're trying to move the Aston Martin brand into a more Ferrari direction with like a makeover of, you know, from the ground up to make them more about a custom car order type situation. I don't know exactly how custom ordering a Ferrari works. I don't have one. So um, it'd be really cool to know. I do know that you have to get on a waiting list for you to be able to buy it at market price instead of having it like $300,000 more than that or something ridiculous like that. So I, Honestly, I think it's a great it's a great play for them to get into more of being a custom car. Yeah, it's it's an interesting play. Um, it's not out of pocket though. If you're gonna focus on custom cars and you're gonna focus on creating a legacy, who better than a poach than two Ferrari execs who have done wonders or done works maybe not wonders, but have done works in continuing the legacy of Ferrari. 
I also, no, fully agree with you. And I also think that, like, you can't actually bet against Lawrence Stroll's business vision. He did the, he took care of the Michael Kors IPO. He's probably done a ton of other IPOs. But he came in when they, when Aston Martin was struggling with their IPO. So I, I can't, I I can't doubt that this isn't going to be successful. Um, and ultimately, the change in CEOs from Lawrence's perspective is going from a CEO that was brought in to stabilize the company during the IPO and the stabilization after that disaster to an, a CEO that has like the vision to take them in a new direction. And like you said, no better person than Ferrari execs to do it. Okay. Should we go Seb or car development to discuss next, Katie? I was actually thinking let's talk about uh, their new campus oh, first. Sorry. Let's get all the business. No, that's okay. Let's get all Third the business option. business out of the way. Um, as as uh, Lawrence Papastrol calls it, a business, not a sport, uh, which is a very different perspective than most people have on Formula One, but that's fine. They are working on building a new state-of-the-art campus that's like – over three buildings big and it's going to have the first new wind tunnel since 2004 and quote all the tools needed to be in fighting state for the championship they are going to have like lawrence talks about it on beyond the grid episode he says there's going to be daycare there's going to be this there's going to be that there's going to be a wellness space so he's really focusing on creating this great establishment that his employees never have to leave that is focused on employee happiness in order to be more successful and so as someone who has studied business and who's someone who works for a startup who also has a ceo that focuses on employee happiness i think that is really important and He's building the culture of what Aston of what he wants Aston Martin to be. Um, so yeah, it's still not complete. Uh, it was delayed because of COVID, uh, so it should have already been done by now. And we're kind of waiting to see when it's going to be finished so they can move in because right now they're working out of a very small and in retrospect, in comparison to others, very small facility that does not give them all of the resources they need now to be in fighting capabilities. I'm in. I'm excited to see it. I, I'm excited to see if the new wind tunnel that they've built is going to allow them to maximize their performance or is going to give them the data that they need to, to be able to maximize performance. And I mean, this is part, this was, he's very clear that this is part of his five-year plan. I don't know if – I mean, in credits, I don't know what year they're at yet. <laughs> yeah. I think this is year one. It should be year one I, from I what we've seen. I think they're repeating freshman year. I, I, yeah. I think they're, they got held <laughs> back and they're repeating freshman year. He might be on the six-year plan that he's going to try to morph into five years. Five years. I don't know. Yep. Okay. Um, since, since we mentioned since we mentioned the wind tunnel, let's talk about let's talk about development. Yeah, let's go there. Yeah. So the car that this is this is a claim. This is a quote. This is a this is a thing that I've picked up on that I found 
the supposed car that we're seeing now looks nothing like the car that they're actually currently testing in the wind tunnel. So we could see a completely new vehicle halfway through the season with a new side pod and a brand new floor design. That's like the biggest thing that I have taken away from reading about Aston Martin's development is that halfway through the season, we could see a brand new vehicle, brand new formula car compared to what we're seeing now. I think it's going to be interesting to see them in Barcelona. I I do truthfully think that it is going to be very, very interesting to compare the two and prepare perform and compare performance. It's really hard for me to talk today. Honestly, every day it is, but it will be interesting to be able to compare that performance. We have, we are aware we've, we've read between the lines. We've saw the hints in the interviews. We know an upgrade is coming. Um, I, I'm gonna. I, I kind of want to hold back all, re, you know, claims or you know, staking a position on this until after Barcelona. So we'll have to give you guys an update what we think after Barcelona. But I'm hopeful. I really am hopeful. I do. I do want to see an, like Aston Martin have success. I think that is a little bit that I just love the brand in itself. Yeah, and I think. It's important to support them in the troubling times as if not more important to support them now than it is to support them in the best times just because the car didn't pan out how they thought it was going to pan out doesn't mean that we shouldn't be rooting for them. Um, And I think we should expect significant upgrades for the remainder of this season. Crack has indicated that he wants to bring updates to every race and that they are quite far from giving up on the 2022 car. So they're not out of it for me. There is still plenty of time for them to recover and show some face in doing what I think they are capable of doing. I think they just need to get... I'm going to save my thoughts. Let's move on. Let's talk about Seb because I'm really... Really concerned about the situation we've got, Katie. We've got this Sebastiation going on. Oh God! <laughs> I've coined a we new do. term. We I do. think he's. His I think con- he's going to go. Yeah, his contract's up at the end of the season, and I mentioned it earlier, but he's been openly doubting his future in Formula One. I mentioned it before. He. That interview, the one piece I've got from it so far is that he literally is questioning whether F1 should even exist. And at the point that he's questioning if the the thing that is his passion should even exist makes me think that if he comes back next year, it will be on a one-year contract. And I think he's done. I don't see him sticking around much longer. He's the oldest one on the grid, correct? Uh, how old is Fernando? I always forget their ages because in my mind, Fernando Alonso is cheap. In my brain, Fernando Alonso is younger. Fernando's the oldest. He's 40 and Sebastian is 38, I believe. See, like, I don't even think Sebastian Vettel's 38. Oh, Sebastian's 34. Sebastian Vettel is not 34. Dude, that's what Google's telling me right now. Lewis is 37. Sebastian is, I'm pulling it up again, 34 years old, 1987. That's literally factually inaccurate. That man is way older than, I don't know. 
I, in my mind, in my mind, Sebastian mm. Vettel is a lot older than 34. Holy shit. Uh, that that amazed me because I've never looked up his age. Why would I ever look up that man's age? Because in my mind, he's yeah. like 40. In my mind, Lewis Hamilton is not 37 either. So it's like. That's also an issue. In my mind, also Sergio Perez is a lot younger than he is as well. Yeah. And so is Daniel Ricciardo. The ages are so stressful to me because, like, some of them just feel like they're older. I think it's because they've been around a lot longer and I just can't mm-hmm. – I can't math sometimes. No, no, I think – wow, I really thought he was the oldest one on the grid. I should have known that. I knew Fernando Alonso was the oldest. God – gosh dang it. Well, meh, moving on. <laughs> um, no. So – yeah. Oh, I, I just ahead. don't think he's – I just really don't think that he is – gonna stick around long term we know he's not gonna stick around long term because I, I i truthfully think that he wants to have a career beyond f1 that is doing the things that he that i believe are important that it, that he believes are important the only way he sticks around i think is if he believes that his access to having a platform will be diminished but he's also yeah. made his name off the track so i i, I I'm conflicting, but no, I think there's – I don't know if he'll be back next year, and I really – I really just – I hate that for me and you and the Sebastian Yeah, Bell and fans. honestly, I, I hate it for Aston Martin because they're losing experience, they're losing the leader of the team, and they're losing someone who's capable of developing not only a vehicle but the team itself and bringing them in the right direction. So I did read this one article about who the – potential replacements could be again these are all rumors so let's just not trust the rumor mill um pierre gasly i thought was interesting um that's an interesting choice for me fernando alonso nico hulkenberg gasly will not leave because helmet marco has like a chokehold on that guy's career unless he is able to get out of that chokehold Unless he can be stronger than the dark forces. Yeah. Unless, yeah, seriously, the dark forces. Uh, and then potentially a young gun if Lance could step up as leader of the team, which I'm just not sure he's ready for that yet. Um, but it could also be interesting to see him paired with a young rookie. I liked the pairing of Hulkenberg and Stroll. I mean, I, like Nico didn't, you know, have a great first two races. They weren't in the points at all. Um but I did like the partnership of them. I really like Nico Hulkenberg. I'd love to see him back on the grid. I don't know if it'll ever happen. Um, I think, I mean, it completely is dependent on if Sebastian Vettel is going to retire or not. Hell, he might, Sebastian Vettel might pull a Fernando Alonso dip and then come back. I could see he that could. happening as well. Yeah, he could take a little break. Um. Okay. I have one more thing we need to talk about today because let me tell you, Netflix snaps to you for your timely, timely release of a new film that Katie and I watched this weekend. It is called Operation Mincemeat. Y'all are probably like, why the hell are they talking about some Netflix movie? Well, this is actually very relevant to Aston Martin. And I'm pumped about this. Like I called Katie, Katie. Agree that I was like hyped to shit about this. I would agree. And I cued her in on something that she called me about one part of it. And then I told her about the other half of this. And then she was like, oh my God. And then hung up on me and then was like, 
or was like, I'm going to go do research and hung up on me. And I think I went back to my nap until you were until at the I started market. the movie and watched it. Oh, I was at the farmer's market. But then I, I came interrupted home and I her the farmer's movie. market experience for this because yeah. this is important. So while I was reading up about the history of Aston Martin, I found a nugget of information. After, by the way, after I had watched the movie, I did put this all together. I'd watched the movie very late after a couple of beverageinos. So I totally missed this. So in Operation Mincemeat and actually in real life, because it is a real life move. Let me back it up. It is a real operation. Operation Mincemeat occurred during World War II. Netflix has just released a movie with Colin Firth and... The other guy that played Mr. Darcy, oh. who's also in Succession. So it's like the two Mr. Darcy's coming together in one film together. Um, and then it has some characters from Downton Abbey in it as well. Because um, there's and only so has, many British um, actors. It has um, Malfoy. Not Draco, but... Lucius. I can't think. Lucius. Thank you. Okay. Lucius Malfoy. Yes. Great cast. Amazing cast. I really liked the movie. I'll just say it there. I, I do think it was a little bit slow, but I like movies like that. So great movie. But what's important about why I'm babbling on about this and so excited that I've completely lost my train of thought and I've just botched this whole intro of this is that in the movie and in real life, um, a man by the name of St. John Radcliffe Stewart Horschel, his nickname is Jock, so that's what I'm going to refer to him as, he participated in Operation Mincemeat. He was a driver who worked for MI5 during World War II, and he actually, crazily enough, was a driver for Aston Martin. So literally, he participated in Operation Mincemeat as their driver and then after the war would go on to become a driver for Aston Martin. I mean, like, come on. How timely, Netflix. You really just teed this one up for me. What's really (laughs) interesting about Jock, though, and this is a nugget of information that I found so intriguing, is that he was um, he had an astigmatism and he was severely short sighted, but refused to wear glasses when he drove. So. Pretty freaking amazing. Pretty freaking amazing. Um, I highly recommend you go back and see him in it. Operation Mincemeat is like, I didn't, it was kept a secret for 54 years by British intelligence, but it was a secret operation that um, basically they tricked or deceived the enemy, aka Germany, into believing that they were going to land in Greece when they actually were going to land in Sicily. And so um, it's just really cool and really amazing. You see him in the movie. He's played by some actor I don't recognize, um, but they re- refer to him as like Jock. And jo- I think they refer to him as Jock Horschel, which was his nickname and his last name, which is why I don't think I picked it up. So it's just really freaking cool. <laughs> yeah. And great movie. Megan, do you want to – did we – did you talk about 007 or? No, I left that to you because you oh, were the one who okay. put me in on it. All right. Sorry. I thought she was just going to take it, but I'll take it. Okay. So here's the interesting part. I don't And I don't know. Maybe you guys aren't big James Bond fans. 
Roger, our father, had made me watch all of the James Bond movies before I was 12. I believe they're all rated PG-13, whatever, besides the point. So Ian Fleming is the author of all the James Bond novels, and he was also involved in Operation Mincemeat. He was a lieutenant commander, and there's kind of this relationship that stemmed. Obviously, Ian Fleming is connected to James Bond the spy, but also to Aston Martin cars. So car enthusiasts, it's a British British brand and um, writing Bond, Aston Martin, uh, you know, I think when we watch the movies, we see Aston Martin cars. So the connection between Ian Fleming and Jacques um, could have led to, if not did not lead to, the reason why all of the Aston Martins are in all of the James Bond movies. And that was the part that Megan had missed. And I was like, yeah, Ian Fleming, James Bond writer, that he's in it. And he writes a story along the way. I believe his character is the narrator, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if it's the narrator, but they reference him like multiple times. And in the end, um, one of them comes out and is like, what are you writing? And he's like, spy story. And you're like, oh, that's James Bond. Ian Fleming himself was like freaking like super into cars. And it makes sense why he picked Aston Martin um, because they were like, finding racing success i don't know i just think it's all really cool and it's all really timely and so i'm really hyped about it it's really i don't know maybe i'm just dorking out i only really like aston martin because james bond drives aston martins because i've always had a crush on aston martin because again i was forced to watch them before i was probably allowed should have been allowed to and um i by the way up until like age 14 i didn't realize how much sex james bond had because I had yeah. watched them at a, a too young of an age to really pick up on all of that. Or how awful he is to women. So Horrible. Horrible to horrible. women. Horrible. Also, I have to bring that up. Thank you, I, Roger. Thanks, Dad. You're <laughs> great. We love you. Um, can't wait to go to Canada with you. Which is Lance Stroll's home race. So I'll be excited to see that, too. I'm hoping they um, really do it up there. Because I, I, I'll be excited about that. It's also Nicholas Latifi's, but yeah. Um, Whatever. I did love last year all of the Aston Martin stuff that they did around James Bond. Like they had the they had the 007 logo on the car. We saw Seb and Lance try to stunt drive the DB4, which is, you know, like the original car that led to the phenomenon of showing, you know, a DB4 in all of the James Bond movies, which I mean, Aston Martin's appear in nearly half of the movies. Um I love it. I, I just love it. It's stupid shit like this that like all these connections that I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> small world. Small very, world. Very, very small world. So let's wrap up with why you should be a fangirl of Aston Martin. My first one is uh, Sebastian Vettel. Four-time world champion. How can you not like him? Stand-up guy. Would love to get a drink with him. Would love to sit and have him read me a story. Um, all of the above. I'd love for him to just, like, teach me all of the things about, like, beekeeping. Beekeeping. He could talk to me about anything. I'd be interested in it. Um, the second – or my first thing, the second thing overall is the fact that it's just such, like, a historic British brand that has its name back in Formula One. Um, the James Bond connection is cool. I mean, I nerded out to it, and I'm so sorry for everybody. You should have just skipped through all of that. Actually, don't, but whatever. And the fact that it is – to me, it is so tied to being like a spy, 
a spy car. There's that favorite, the famous conversation between Q and Bond where he's like, where's the Bentley? And he's like, that one's not not here today. And that just evokes the sense of like intrigue and mystery and espionage that I've always loved. And then my other reason is at the end of the day, no matter how we feel about the Stroll family, it's a family business. And I think it's cool to see a father-son pairing on the grid. I, a from what I can tell, healthy father and son pairing on the grid. Um, yep, I just subtweeted pretty hard. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's family business, and would I can't I really cannot wait to see what Lawrence does with it and whether or not this five year plan succeeds. So I might be a cop-out because you kind of hinted at it just now, is I think you should be a fan because they are – I do think that this plan will evolve into something that brings them some success. I don't think they're going – unless something massively changes, I don't know if they'll ever be, you know, challenging for the world championship, either of them, drivers or constructors. But I do have this hope, and maybe it's because I believe in, like, the business model – that has been successful before, I do think that they will be moving up the grid. I don't know if it happens this year. I don't know if it happens next year. But I think that they could they could see in the future. And I, I would like to support that journey. Whether it's successful or not, we don't know. But I do I do think you should support like the desire of a midfield team to become more competitive. Okay. Up next is the Spanish Grand Prix on Sunday, May 23rd at the Circuit de Barcelona, Catalunya. It is a 66 lap race and is the last and the last time cars were here was February for preseason testing. So we're going to look out for a lot of comparisons of the cars from then in February to now at the end of May. If you're like me, you're interested to see what what we're going to see this weekend. The circuit was built as part of the 1992 Barcelona Olympics development program. And the first car race was actually the 1991 Spanish touring car championship. And then two weeks later, we saw the first formula one race here. It's a good mix of high and low speed corners with a tricky and very long turn three. Um, and the last five Grampies have been wins for Lewis Hamilton. So Hamilton has tied with six victories at this track and this grand prix with Michael Schumacher. Um, for the greatest numbers of victories at this place, um, even though it's gone through some layout changes. I'm going to be interested to see who wins this weekend. I think that Lewis Hamilton's run is over, unless um, unless those Mercedes upgrades are really something to write home about. But I'm excited to see what happens, and I'm hoping for another Aston Martin double points finish. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us at Dirty Driving Pot on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, stay dirty.